in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this evening, for this time that you have ordained from all eternity. We thank you, Lord, that not a single one of us are here by chance or blind fate. None of us are here by luck or by accident. But Lord, we are here because you have willed our steps amidst all the plans that we chose to make today. This, Lord, is where you purposed not in the last few moments, but before this day ever existed. You wrote, as it were, this time down in your book that this is where we would be. And for what purpose but to worship you and to worship you as the gathered body of Christ and to do so through the teaching, through the preaching, through the applying of your holy word to each of our lives. And to that holy end, blessed Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would greatly accompany the ministry of your word to reach the hearts of us all. Where we need great conviction, we trust in you, Lord, that you will bring it. Where we need great comfort, we trust that you will bring it. Where we need to be both wounded and healed by your word, we trust in you to so bring that for the furtherance of our sanctification, but also, and most importantly, Lord, for the greatness and the greater manifestation of your glory in our lives as your people. For these things, we pray for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord and in his name, we ask, amen, and amen. Well, I invite you this evening to take the word of God and let us turn to Matthew chapter 7. As you're turning there tonight, I am beginning a new series of teachings that actually is a bit unusual. Um, for me, because usually I, I will take either a chapter or, you know, or a book or, you know, whatever, um, and work that way uh, in expounding the word. But tonight, I'm going to begin a series which I have entitled, What Did Jesus Say? That's the, that's the title of the series. It's a question. What did Jesus say? And we're going to be looking at some of the most common, some of the most familiar recorded words of our Lord in the gospel that also are the most misinterpreted, 
the most misapplied, the most misunderstood, and we are going to strive to understand these words of our Lord in their right context and therefore in the right application. So tonight we begin with Matthew 7 and verse 12. And this is without a doubt in Western civilization. This is the most well-known, the most familiar, the most quoted words of the Lord Jesus Christ from the Gospels. And we know these words as the golden rule. Matthew 7, verse 12, here are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And so reads the infallible and the inerrant word of the living God. When you take the time to consider all that Jesus taught and preached in the Sermon on the Mount, there was perhaps no words more shocking and countercultural than what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The fundamental reason this declaration would have been so startling to the first century Jew was due to the fact that the scribes and Pharisees were the bona fide good old boys of Israel. The status and reputation of these men set them apart as the model Jew. Highly religious, morally pristine, and deeply respectable. Moreover, the scribes and Pharisees were looked up to as the great teachers and keepers of God's law. The scribes were those Jews entrusted by the nation to preserve the law, instruct younger men in the law, and administrate the law as judges within the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were the great advocates and public practitioners of the law to the common man. And so together, the scribes and Pharisees were the epitome of the Jewish religion. Why, there was even a motto in the Jewish world of that time that said, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. That was a real, actual saying in those days. So when our Lord Jesus declared to his Jewish disciples that if their righteousness did not surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, they would never enter the kingdom of heaven, we can only imagine how confused, horrified, and astounded they must have been. They might have been thinking, why, if the scribes and Pharisees will never enter the kingdom of heaven by their righteousness... Well, then what hope do we have? We're done. But what our Lord's disciples did not understand at this point about the scribes and Pharisees 
was that both their righteousness and religion was spiritually and morally bankrupt by God's standard. Their whole religion was intentionally external and superficial because it could be outwardly practiced with great zeal and diligence no matter what the condition of the heart or soul. Furthermore, it was a religion of ceremony and tradition that the most hardened unbeliever could follow. And lastly, it was concerned with covering up sin, not exposing and cleansing it with appearing righteous, not being righteous. In the light of these facts then, for Jesus to declare that unless... Unless one's righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees, they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. For Jesus to say that was simply to point out that self-righteousness in man-made religion would always fall short of God's perfect standard. Despite how good the scribes and Pharisees appeared in the eyes of man, yet before God they were nothing but what Jesus himself described as whitewashed tombs, appearing beautiful on the outside, but within full of dead men's bones. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus exposes about the scribes and Pharisees. And where our Lord begins in this exposure is in the way the scribes and Pharisees actually handled the teaching of God's law. This starts at Matthew 5.21 and concludes at Matthew 5.48. This part of the sermon is the longest and most exhaustive treatment Jesus gives to uncover the intentional falsehood of the scribes and Pharisees. Our Lord shows how the scribes and Pharisees twisted God's law or added to God's law for the sole purpose of meeting their demands for the righteousness they were willing to maintain. Moreover, Jesus shows the real meaning of God's law by the snapshot examples he gives. How, for instance, murder is not only the taking of someone's life physically, but it begins with anger in the heart. So what Jesus was teaching by his exposition of God's law is that obedience to what God commands is not merely abiding by an external code, but rather true obedience to the law of God begins in the heart, which follows through in our words and actions. A heart that has been transformed by God's saving grace, which loves God with the whole of one's being and loves one's neighbor as he loves himself. Now, with this in mind, I want us to turn this evening to Matthew 7 and verse 12, where our Lord Jesus captures the sum teaching of both the law and the prophets as it concerns our relationships to all people everywhere. Jesus declares, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. By this one simple proclamation, our Lord states that everything which the law and the prophets command as the application of neighbor love is fulfilled in this mere synopsis. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says here in Matthew 7 and verse 12 is not some random thought 
which has no connection with everything that has preceded it in this sermon. In fact, we should notice that the very first word in this verse implies a deduction being drawn from what Jesus has already preached. It's the word so, or therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. These words crystallize the basic ethical action we should take by every command Jesus gave in this sermon regarding our relationships with other people. So, if you don't want others judging you harshly, then don't judge them harshly. If you don't want others retaliating against you because you insulted them, but rather to overlook the offense and turn the other cheek, then you must treat them when then you must treat them in the same way when they insult you. And so forth and so on. By merely seeing Matthew 7:12 connected to the greater context of the Sermon on the Mount, it should be no wonder that this one single verse has been rightly called the golden rule. As J.C. Ryle observed, this is a golden rule indeed. It does not merely forbid all petty malice and revenge, all cheating and overreaching. It does much more. It settles a hundred difficult points which in a world like this are continually arising between man and man. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. It sweeps the whole debatable ground with one mighty principle. It shows us a balance and measure by which everyone may see at once what is his duty. Is there a thing we would not like our neighbor to do to us? Then let us always remember that this is the thing we ought not to do to him. So, as we approach Matthew 7 and verse 12, I want us to raise and answer three very simple questions surrounding this single verse. First, what is the golden rule? Second, why is the golden rule not fulfilled by man? Third, how do we apply the golden rule? To begin with then, let's raise the first very basic question. What is the golden rule? The golden rule or the ethic of reciprocity is a biblical maxim laid down by our Lord Jesus Christ which expresses what is the true meaning behind the second greatest commandment in God's law. Love your neighbor as you love yourselves. It is love for others, therefore, which drives this scriptural maxim. But the outworking of this love actually begins with asking ourselves the question, how would I want others to treat me? How would I want others to treat me? You see, this is really where the golden rule starts in our relation to other people. It opens up with a question about what I like, about what it is that pleases me. What are the things that help and encourage me? And if you want to get real practical, you sit down and make a list of all these things that would edify you. You work them out in detail, not only in deeds, but also in thoughts and in speech with respect to the whole of your life and activities. And once you've drawn up the list, then when you come to deal with other people, you have nothing to do but to say quite simply, that other person 
is exactly as I am in these matters. The golden rule places us constantly in the other person's position whereby we really are treating them in the same way we would want them to treat us. This is therefore an incredibly redeeming and positive principle. Now, historically, it has been assumed by many that what Jesus says here in Matthew 7 and verse 12 is merely the positive adage to the negative rule of conduct taught in the Old Testament Apocrypha. Do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. It was this rule quoted in 20 B.C. by the famous Rabbi Hillel when asked by a would-be proselyte to teach him the whole law while standing on one leg. Rabbi Hillel responded, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law, all the rest is only commentary. At face value, this may appear to be saying the same as Jesus in Matthew 7 and verse 12. But the truth is, there is an enormous difference between the negative and rather grudging maxim of Hillel and the positive initiative contained in the instruction of our Lord. The negative maxim is less demanding. It forbids action. It does not prescribe it, it and it sets limits. Moreover, it actually leaves sins of omission untouched. Whereas what Jesus teaches is without limit in both its demands and scope. Furthermore, our Lord's instruction is not only positive, it embraces the whole of our lives in every aspect. Understand this. There is no human relationship we have with anyone in this world that can be subtracted from the application of the golden rule. And this is where it becomes very convicting. Let's dig a little deeper on this. Concerning the glory of this divine rule, Charles Spurgeon declared, Put yourself in another's place and then act to him as you would wish him to act towards you under the same circumstances. This is a right royal rule. A precept always at hand, always applicable, always right. Here you may be a judge and yet not be judging others but judging for others. This is the sum of the Decalogue, the Pentateuch, and the whole sacred word. Oh, that all men acted on it, and then there would be no slavery, no war, no swearing, no striking, no lying, no robbing, but all would be justice and love. What a kingdom is this which has such a law? This is the code, Christian. This is the condensation of all that is right and generous. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this assessment about the golden rule. Sometimes we foolishly tend to think that our international and other problems are economic, social, or political. But in reality, they all come down to this, our relationships with people. It is not money. Money does not come into it. But it is only a kind of counter that is used. No, it is a question of what I myself want and what the other person wants. And ultimately, all the clashes and disturbances and unhappiness in life are due to this. 
And our Lord here in this curious laconic statement puts the whole truth concerning this matter. All things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. That is the final statement about this question. If only we approached it like that, starting with self and then applying it to others, the entire problem would be solved. Beloved, do you understand, do you get what Lloyd-Jones is saying there at the end? Starting with self and then applying it to others, the entire problem would be solved. What, what problem would be eradicated by obeying the golden rule? It's the problem we have in our relationships with other people. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. If only we obeyed God's word right here, then all our relational problems in marriage, family, the church, the workplace, and in every other culture where we find ourselves in relation to others, all those problems would be solved. Because in the golden rule, Jesus is teaching us how to love others in a way that will benefit them the most, treating them the way we would want them to treat us. That is the golden rule. But sadly, while most people will praise and extol the beauty and virtue of the golden rule, yet we find in the world, and yes, even in the church, that the golden rule is merely an icon to be admired than a grace to be practiced. And saying this leads us to raise the next major question in our study. Why is the golden rule not fulfilled by man? This really is a fundamental question that has to be raised because it forces us all to look at the root of our relational problems. Why is it that people forsake applying the golden rule? Why is it that loving our neighbors, we love ourselves, is praised with our lips but not practice in our lives? Why is it that a command of God, the, this golden rule, listen, that is so easy to understand. This is so easy to understand and so universally redemptive in its relational scope. But why is it vastly absent in our relationships with other people? Why? Well, the answer is theological and thoroughly biblical. The root to, our, to all our relational problems, and thus the chief reason we see so little, if any, of the golden rule in application is because man by nature is a sinner. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And in Mark 7, 20-23, Jesus teaches us that out of man's wicked heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. You see, here's the reason. Here is the reason for all the problems we have in all our relationships with other people. It is that our hearts are wicked and sinful. Our hearts are bent and inclined to tear others down rather than to build them up. When God commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, 
Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The sinful heart of sinful man responds in rebellion and despises such love for other people. This is why there is hatred. This is why there is prejudice. This is why there is disdain that people have for other people. Man is a sinner who hates God, hates his law, and thereby rebels against the golden rule, forsaking it because he will not nor cannot obey it. But what this ultimately teaches us about man's failure to keep the golden rule is that at the heart of his sinfulness, now pay close attention to this, at the heart of his sinfulness is a love for self. A love for self. In other words, left to our sinfulness, our love for self will drive us to think only of ourselves while never considering how the other person feels or what would benefit them most in how we treat them. This is certainly true of the unbeliever, the non-Christian, at all times. Because his only natural bent is towards sin and rebelling against God. Yet, this is also true for the Christian as well. Because though he is redeemed with a new nature, he still has to war against sin that remains in his flesh. So, for, so the love for self enslaves the non-Christian on the one hand, while on the other hand, it is always fighting to regain control in the Christian whose life is now bound to Christ. But the simple point in all of this is that the failure to keep the golden rule is a sinful love for self. A sinful love for self. Martin Lloyd-Jones, to quote again from the doctor, he put it this way, we do not do unto others as we would wish them to do unto us because the whole time we are thinking only about ourselves and we never transfer our thought to the other person. That is, in other words, the condition of man in sin as the result of the fall. He is entirely self-centered. He thinks of nothing and no one but himself. He is concerned about nothing but his own well-being. Instinctively, we are all self-centered. We are resentful of what is said and thought of us, but we never seem to realize that other people are the same because we never think of the other person. The whole time, we are thinking of self. So the absence, the forsaking, and the all-pervasive failure of mankind in the whole to live by the golden rule is due to man's fall into sin and the results thereof. Our sinfulness manifested prominently in the love of self impedes us to treat others the way we would want them to treat us. It's really that simple. It is really that simple. But while this is the truth behind man's failure to keep the golden rule, nevertheless, what our Lord says here in Matthew 7 and verse 12, he expected to be applied. And this leads us to our final major question in this study. How do we apply 
the golden rule. How do we do this? Since the golden rule is in reality a gospel grace, then to apply what Jesus teaches in Matthew 7 to verse 12, we do not ultimately start either with ourselves or with other people. But we actually start with God. We start with God. In other words, the only way that we'll see ourselves and others with an understanding and knowledge that is true, the only way that we'll be free from self-centeredness and give ourselves selflessly to the benefit of others, and the only way that we will actually treat others the way we would want them to treat us is through God's grace, by his power, enabling us on account of Christ in the Holy Spirit. The fulfillment of the golden rule, therefore, begins, is carried out, and applied by God working in his people. But you see, this is what so many people don't understand, right? About the golden rule. And they end up striving by their own efforts to live up to this high and holy standard of love without God. Without God. They look at the golden rule, admire what it says, and see the value of its application in human relationships. However, not seeing it in the context of God's redeeming grace, they turn it into a moralism for self-righteous do-gooders. The golden rule, therefore, is truncated of its gospel power and left to a mere form of mechanical charitable acts without a heart that loves God in his grace through Christ. The result of which leaves man with a very hollow shell that looks like the golden rule, looks like it, but it is still driven by the love of self. It's still driven by the love of self. To explain this in a much simpler way, we can say this. If you are not right with God, you will not be right with other people. It's really that simple. If you are not right with God, you will not be right with your fellow man, your neighbor. A right relationship with God is what gives us a right relationship with other people. And this is, in fact, the biblical order in relationships. Man is not right with man because man is not right with God. And the only way that, the only way that man can be right with God is through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Through Christ, we are redeemed of our sins, rescued from the condemnation they deserve, and reconciled to God. Moreover, through Christ, we are born again by the Holy Spirit, who gives us a new nature and thereby a new love for people we never had before. And it is right here where the fulfillment and application of the golden rule is carried out. If we have been saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ, then we have a new life. 
we have a new life, a life that has been transformed with a new character, which exhibits through time graces that are beyond what we could ever achieve if we were left in our sin. The love we see, therefore, in the golden rule, and listen very carefully to this, the love we see in the golden rule is not a love we are born with in our natural state. It is not. But it is a love we receive when we are born again. Because it is a love that begins with love for God. That in turn loves others as we would love ourselves. How we apply then the golden rule? It must begin with God. It must begin with God. So, when we read here in Matthew 7, 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The first question we need to ask is, am I right with God? That's the first question. Am I right with God? Do I know God? I may know about him, but do I know him? Do I have a living, intimate, saving relationship with the living God? And of course, the only way to answer these questions is to raise another important question. Do I know Jesus Christ? The only way I can know God is through Jesus Christ, his son. It is only through Christ that we can be in God's favor, receiving his full forgiveness of all our sins and being adopted in his family as one of his children. Only through Christ can this happen. So have we come to faith in Jesus Christ? Are we trusting in Christ alone to put us right with God? Is Jesus Christ our only hope, our only righteousness before God? Now, if you would answer yes to all these questions and confess that you know yourself to be a Christian because of God's grace in Jesus Christ, then my next question is this, returning to Matthew 7 and verse 12. Are you fulfilling the golden rule? Are you fulfilling the golden rule? Only someone who's right with God through faith in Jesus Christ can fulfill the golden rule. Hence it must be asked, is this divine rule true of us? Are we striving through God's grace to treat others the way we want them to treat us? Are we putting ourselves in the position of other people and actively, conscientiously treating them with the very same things that we know pleases us? Are we pursuing this neighbor love no matter what it may cost us, nor how difficult and hard certain people may be to love like this. Think about your marriage. Think about your family, your natural family. Think about the people you work with or the people you know in the community. Are we showing them the love we would wish they would show to us? Think about the local church, a fellow Christians you are in covenant with. Is the golden rule consistently applied here? 
Quite honestly, there is frankly no community in all this world where we should see the golden rule more authentically applied than with the gathered body of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is only in believers where this divine rule can be fleshed out. As Christians, we have the grace in Christ through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to treat one another in the same manner we would wish them to treat us. So for us as God's redeemed people, if we are not fulfilling the golden rule, then we need to repent. We need to repent. And what we need to repent of the most is that very ugly carnal love of self, that love, our love for God and our love for our neighbor. To say this more plainly, we must kill the sin of being selfish and self-centered in our relationships with other people. This means, for example, we need to learn and grow in the grace of treating others with humility. I think I was saying a lot about this this past Sunday, right? Interesting how this just ties in beautifully with what we heard this past Sunday. How do we treat others with humility? Well, not seeing ourselves as better than others or more superior than others. Instead, we need to follow the example of the Apostle Paul who said of himself, I am less than the least of all the saints, but the chief of sinners. We should see ourselves through those lenses in our relationships with other people, especially in the body of Christ, most especially. But, of course, if there is any great... and responsibility as Christians to care for indeed. This means that we, we seek together as the body of Christ to provoke one another to praying for one another, admonishing one another, edifying one another, bearing each other's burdens. And that is not impossible. That is not impossible. This is not Christians this is not out of our reach to fulfill. Not at all. The golden rule is a gospel grace. It is a gospel grace. And we, as believers in Christ, we have that grace in Christ to carry out for his glory to all people everywhere. Which means, brothers and sisters, there is no excuse. There's no excuse. We, can, we cannot give any excuse to say, oh, but Lord, you couldn't mean that person. Not that person. They're so rotten. They're so hard. They're so vile and Surely not that person. Really? Well, if you read Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And as I like to say whenever I do uh, reference that passage in Matthew 5, 
Nowhere in that command and in our Lord's explanation of that command does Jesus ever say that they become your friends. No, they remain your enemies. Your enemies. People that hate you and despise you and hold you in contempt. And Jesus says, love them. But why, Lord? And our Lord says, because your Father in heaven showers both the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes his son to rise on the just and the unjust. So be like your father. Show that benevolent love for all of mankind, even those who personally despise you, who personally hate you. Love them. And if I just may, turning to that passage, I will tell you one thing that is most convicting about that passage in Matthew 5 of where our Lord tells us to love our enemies. It's where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 46 and following, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Ouch. You love those who love you? Well, that don't take any grace. And that's what he's saying. I mean, what grace does that take? Unbelievers do that. Hmm, okay. But our Lord's not finished. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Why did he have to say that? That's, that's hard. That's difficult. That is so difficult. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I remember years ago, several years ago, it was immediately following my second pastorate and just everything, everything that happened. There in the end, it was awful. And uh, while my wife and I were convinced that we were heading back home to Atlanta, the Lord had a completely different plan that surprised us. Oh, no, we're staying in South Georgia. But, Lord, you're staying in South Georgia. You're going to start a new work here. But that would unfold for the next three months. But I remember very distinctly, this one moment in time. So this was in Smallsville, okay? We're talking um, a little tiny town, population 876, rural, rural South Georgia, agrarian community, farming community. And believe you me, everybody knows everybody. We were shocked at the people who knew us, and we said, who are you? But what they knew us. But I remember this one day, I was driving down the road, and I saw the person coming up on the other side of the road toward me, and it was one of them, one of those nasty people at the church that I just resigned from. It was one of them who was part of the whole ugly debacle and the coup that was seeking to get rid of me and so forth and so on. And, and, and when I drove by, my conscience was saying, wave at him, 
And I said, I will not. And I went right on by. And immediately, immediately, the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, smacked me really hard with what I just read to you from Matthew chapter 5. If you only greet your brothers, you're no different than everybody else. You're no different than Gentiles. And right there, I confess my sin to the Lord. I asked his forgiveness. And I asked the Lord to give me another opportunity, whether it was with that person or the several others. I'm sure that I would run into them somehow. It's a small town. But I said, Lord, if I see any of them again, by, by your grace, I will treat them the way I would want them to treat me. And so I will, I will greet them. Now, by greeting them doesn't mean getting all chummy and you acting like they're your best friend. That's fake and that's hypocrisy. Okay, let's be clear about that. But you... You can, you can be without hypocrisy by saying I was given plenty of opportunities. <laughs> and by God's grace... And this is why I say there's in our little world, no one. And that's when you know immediately, dear Christian. God has given us everything we need in Christ by the Spirit to do this. So, and you will be praying all along the way because it's all of grace. It's all in grace. Let's pray. Our holy... standard of your word, Lord, takes our breath away. Because when it is...
we realize very quickly that there is nothing in and of ourselves that can carry out what you've commanded us to do. And that is the moment, Lord, where we run to you and we cast ourselves upon you, relying in full upon your grace and your power to do the impossible. But Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus Christ, because of the indwelling spirit, what you are calling us and commanding us to do, to treat others the way we would wish them to treat us, that is not impossible for us to fulfill because you've given us everything we need in Christ to do it. We must simply act upon that grace and trust you for the results, trust you to carry us in the moment. And so, Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves to you and we commit ourselves to, to such to such choices that we would make in the strength of your grace to not subtract anybody from this golden rule, especially those people that we have the hardest and the most difficult time with in our life, even people that have hurt us so deeply. Lord, we know that with you all things are possible and that Therefore, through Christ, we can do all things because you strengthen us to do so. Let us not, let us dare not forget this, Holy Father. We count on you to do what is humanly impossible so that your glory will be more greatly displayed in our life. And indeed, Lord, you will get all the credit, not us. It'll not ever be about how great we are. The testimony will be, how great is our God? Look at what he's done, that we could do what we are doing. For these things, Holy Father, we thank you for the sake of our Lord Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen.